I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. In this episode, I speak with the architectural photographer Max Creasy. Creasy grew up in Australia and is half Norwegian, a language he's fluent in, and now lives in Berlin, working between there and London, where many of his commissions are based. And that's one of the things that first drew me to Creasy's work, the kind of foreignness he occupies that you can really feel when you look at his pictures, which often uncover the strange and unfamiliar dimensions of everyday environments. Creasy's fascination with the overlooked and incongruous is something he shares with a lot of architects, but it's also something that sets him apart from the standard promotional aesthetic of much architectural photography. I spoke with Creasy back in September 2021 via Zoom from his home in Berlin, and we talked about, among other things, the power of visual culture to create and reinforce social norms, and his interest, beginning with his exposure to 90s skateboard culture, and how social groups work to endorse a certain visual language. We also tried to get closer to an understanding of what he's described as vernacular photography, and how he applies this to the way architecture is represented in his work. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. The way I wanted to start was with this thing I read about you holding an exhibition in your bedroom after you'd moved from Australia to London, uh-huh. which were plaster casts that you'd made of every everyday objects, um, like a milk carton, a yellow highlighter, a tub of yogurt. Yeah. This, this project reflections, this exhibition, it really was an art exhibition. And as a photographer, you took on the role of a sculptor as well, modeling and fashioning these objects. Well, they're, they're, they're made, they're, sorry, they're, they're made from um, molds. So, you know, like I made silicon molds of the objects and then poured the, um, you know, the, the plaster into the molds to, to make the object. So, you know, th- this idea of simulation and how simulation works became kind of important to me. Mm. Yeah, and they were hand-painted as well. And you'd gone so far as to paint on the the highlights and the shadows uh, of a fake light. Yeah, that's right. So I I, I painted the illusion of light onto the object. So photography is a recording of light. And so the the light on these objects, as we saw it in the the images, was was fake or constructed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it made me immediately think of work by Thomas Demand another photographer artist who uh, listeners are probably familiar with who will reconstruct familiar scenes out of paper and then photograph the paper models um, and then usually destroy the model and what you have is this image once removed of a significant cultural event or moment or environment mm-hmm. and this is kind of like that but it's it's different because you're also intervening and the way the the model is rendered. Um, And I guess for me, what's interesting about it is that it's pointing to this really kind of foundational interest in understanding reproduction, simulation, um, illusion, um, and what this process of duplicating something seen in real life has on the way we perceive it. Mm-hmm. And you kind of went back to the, the most raw form of duplication, the cast, to, to achieve that or to explore that. I've read that you've spoken of images as a kind of cast as well, and that um, 
in a way, especially with the kind of pictures you've made where you're kind of restaging events you've seen before, the world itself kind of becomes turned into a kind of sculptural object through photography? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I I think that's where that kind of distinction, I made that distinction between photographs and pictures um, sort of started or happened. And once I sort of stepped into this realm of working with pictures, then I became interested in kind of first understanding how they work and how they work together and that kind of led me to to kind of deconstructing them you know I felt like I had to pull them apart first to understand how they worked before I could I could work with them there's in a way something incredibly raw and innocent about that process where as a photographer you're kind of intervening in that that practice of duplication first of all in the physical state and um, I feel like conceptually you're kind of going under the hood um, and um, tinkering with the with the engine a bit Mm, absolutely (laughs) Um, I don't know how to unpack that further except to say it's incredibly exciting to think that as a photographer you also have the agency to experiment in that way and that the work of the photographer doesn't begin and end with the image it it involves so much of working with the the subject matter itself and producing the subject matter uh, whatever form that takes whether it's a sculpture or a composition or scenography or whatever and i was just excited about the way you'd allowed yourself to intervene like that Mm-hmm. Well, I, I had this period with, with my own photography where in, in terms of um, what I was photographing, I found it hard to, to get away from the literal interpretation or understanding of, of what was in the image. And what I recognised or realised was that... I could place these kind of um, conceptual boundaries or conce- I could set up a conceptual relationship with the images that, that that's what would actually make the, the whole process read in a different way or would set up these um, metaphorical understandings of, of the picture. So it, it wasn't like working with just one picture. It was like setting up a way to work with like multiple pictures. So it wasn't that the... The picture in itself really meant anything it was the the relationship that i'd created for it and so it was thinking more as as an artist or thinking more conceptually about the whole process rather than you know putting piece by piece together which is probably how you know most photographers work you know like i taken one good photo and then i take another good photo and together it kind of forms a story and you know but it was it was about creating a uh, a, a concept and so these are the images that you took with you uh, when you moved to london and exhibited in your bedroom i want to understand what um, compelled you to move away from australia yeah I, I think for a long time i'd just been wanting to be in the you know since i was 16 17 i'd been wanting to to be in the right place kind of culturally and I, I think very simply, I just found Australia a long way away from the, the rest of the world. And, um, you know, from a young age, I got to, to travel. I got to go to, to Norway quite a lot and to Europe. And so I'd, I'd seen the rest of, the, you know, parts of the rest of the world. And, you know, I'd been to America and to Asia and um, I just didn't feel completely connected to to the culture you know on different levels in Australia and so um, that's kind of sort of simply what compelled me to to leave and the the reason I came to London it's the second time that I'd lived in London and um, you know I I just think London is a good mix of a lot of different cultures and um, you know I, I had the 
a passport, a Norwegian passport that would allow me to do that. So that, that was also a factor. But I just think, you know, London is, is uh, there's so much going on there. You know, I just completed my master's and, you know, I, I wanted to bite off a little bit more than I felt I could bite off in, in Australia, for instance. Mm. So, and you you went to high school in Norway as well. And you speak Norwegian. Yeah, I, I went to Folke School. So this is a, a, a school between high school and university. Um, you know, it's kind of considered a growing up school in Scandinavian culture. Um, so I went there for a year, and then, but I, I'd been, you know, my mum and my dad had been taking me back to Norway since I was six months old. So. I, I just picked up Norwegian from from being there as a as a child. Um, you know, I, I have a a two year old now, and as you know, like little kids are just sponges. So, you know, I, I was just there a lot when I was a kid and communicating with my cousins and stuff. So, and my grandparents, and so I yeah, I, I speak um, Norwegian reasonably fluently. I'm interested in this like cosmopolitan identity. <laughs> And mm. also this sense of estrangement from one's home or sense of alienation that I feel like isn't is in fact very productive when mm. it comes to making art and making architecture as well. I feel like some of the the, the most compelling architects are the ones um, whose work is primarily done outside of their home country. Mm-hmm. We could take Atsun, for example, um, where this lack of familiarity, this very clear sense of not belonging, somehow allows for new discoveries or new ways of seeing what mm-hmm. was hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. And you've since moved from London to Berlin. Mm-hmm. Um, what constitutes home for you now? I, I think uh, what constitutes home is is feeling um, like I have uh, cultural allies, or you know, people that I can talk to, you know, about what they're up to and what I'm up to, and you know, you can respect and um, enjoy kind of their their work and your work, and just. Um, you know, have a conversation. Mm. So I, I think that's what constitutes uh, home for me. Mm. I really feel that way too. I mean, I'm from Vancouver, moved to London seven years ago. Um, and also, for obvious reasons, don't feel like I totally belong here. Never really felt like Vancouver was my home either. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realize as I'm saying this that it needs to be caveated quite clearly with the fact that the kind of alienation or estrangement that I'm talking about, that we're talking about, uh, is still by all means a luxury, um, given the fact that, uh, I mean, we're both um, white, we're both male present as pretty normative and so so have a kind of cloak of banality to hide under and are able in some ways to shift and move through different spaces uh, unnoticed. And so this kind of, when I say I feel like I don't belong, it's in that sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I have the luxury of not belonging. Um, but one place where I do feel like uh, there is a kind of home is in the immediacy of conversation and the um, the kind of direct relationship to other people's ideas. And so I totally understand you when you say that home for you is in those kinds of connections. I want to now go back to this process of moving home, of leaving Australia and coming to London. And this first act of trying to establish those connections anew, which for you entailed putting on an exhibition in your bedroom. 
um, I was living in this share house in Dalston and I just happened to have this kind of quite spacious room that was kind of a white cube that looked back onto the the rest of the flat. So it, it just sort of was a gallery. So the 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 work itself had this kind of domestic element to it. And then the actual place that I was living at the time um, sort of seemed to suggest it. And then also having, you know, recently moved to London, I wasn't in a position to show in a more kind of contemporary or, you know, sort of refined space. You know, I didn't have the contacts to do that. So, um, you know, and I'd also sort of been to see um, Jeremy Della show um at the at the Haywood so you know like bedrooms and showing in bedrooms kind of appealed to me you know made sense to me tell me more about the Deller exhibition uh yeah that that was one of the the first major shows that I I saw when I moved to to London and I knew his work kind of before but then um kind of seeing it in person it really resonated with me and particularly this um, installation that was like a recreation of his parents' bedroom where he, he showed some of his, his early work. And um, what really resonated with me was how well he had picked out these kind of cultural references that he had um, exhibited in the room, whether it was um, you know, the Happy Mondays or some rave flyer, it was, it was very poignant sort of 20, 30 years later. So um, this, this idea of curating started to become, you know, kind of more appealing or made kind of more sense to me, um, you know, as part of the artist toolbox, you know, something that's in your kind of repertoire. He, the show was with David Trigley and at, towards the end of the show, they, um, they DJed there at the, the Haywood and he, we were sitting right up the front and then he came into the, to the turntables and he slid in underneath the turntables and then popped up and started DJing. And I was just like, okay, this guy's the man. <laughs> this kind of like little action was, I thought was very cool. Mm. The whole act of running or holding an exhibition in, in one's bedroom, to me, it points to some kind of um, a mythology or a kind of origin story. Um, yeah. And um, I was reminded of uh, Hans Ulrich Obrist, who'd done something similar in his kitchen, I think, maybe when he was younger. But this impulse to use what you have to present your work seems so urgent. And I guess just kind of points to how necessary it was um, in lieu of having any connections to galleries or any yeah. kind of established um, exhibition scene in the city. You simply pinned your work up on your bedroom walls and made a scene uh, yourself. Mm. And I want to go back to that point about coolness too and like how Deller seemed cool to you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Because uh, I feel like that's part of this as well. Um, mm. But I mean, what I'm, what I'm kind of reaching for, I guess, is, is a way of bringing us to these other moments of inspiration earlier on in your life where you saw, you saw work emanating from, if not an exhibition, then a magazine um, mm. and became absorbed in the culture of it. And so I'm talking specifically mm. about skateboarding culture in the 90s. This, this was definitely something I think it's kind of quite important for me, you know, like from an early age, I was reading skateboarding magazines about a culture that was on the other side of the world that, you know, for the most part, I, I wasn't a part of, you know, where I was living in suburban Australia and I was looking, fantasising, you know, observing what was happening Kind of in in america or in in the uk um you know and, and this was kind of a a really nice circle to to finally move back to to london because in in the 90s i became very engrossed with reading one particular magazine which was rad magazine um read and destroy 
Um, and I, I like that magazine so much because it wasn't the, the pro skateboarders from um, America who, you know, were kind of held up on a, a pedestal. It was, you know, more the everyday skater, a bit like myself, who was kind of wanting to be a pro skater. And there was, you know, I, I kind of was more in touch with this culture. And, you know, through all of these kind of magazines, I got to find a pathway into kind of English culture in the 90s. And, and just the other day, I went to, to Milton Keynes with um, Takeshi Hiatsu to look at a project that he was doing. And then we were there in the plaza and I was like, ah, all these ledgers. I remember these ledgers, you know, this was a kind of a spot in the 90s and, you know, like I'd seen pictures of it, but then to come there 30 years later and then actually understand, you know, what it is and the atmosphere was, you know, it was just a kind of a nice circle. Mm-hmm. So but I, I think this this is kind of you know, part of what taps into why I was always kind of felt like I wasn't quite in the right place and, and needed to be an observer somewhere else. Mm. It makes me think back to my adolescence and, and my own attraction to skateboard and surf culture, where, I mean, I didn't skate or surf well at all but uh, was so entranced by the kind of style and fashion that emerged from those cultures and the kind of license it gave you to um, experiment with self-expression. It's it's through those sort of things when I then heard the, you know, the ideas about the norm circles and then adopting the, you know, endorsing certain ideas that I understood like through these cultures that you'd been doing that for years, you know, whether it was the way you, you took off your wetsuit or, you know, like everyone kind of endorses a, a certain sort of way to take off your wetsuit or something and then tie it around your waist or, you know, or then wrap a towel, you know, like I, I then could think of very specific examples within, you know, these very specific cultures that I'd been involved in that made so much sense to me. So mm-hmm. that's what kind of triggered me to then want to go and look and see if I could sort of discover and try and find a thread b- between a, these different cultural languages. Mm. Yeah, you're so right. Like, I think we first start to stylize or, or alter our clothes in a meaningful way um, in our teenage years and try and differentiate or align ourselves uh, with particular cliques or circles um to feel a sense of belonging <laughs> uh in a way that's very um innocent and it's about a kind of yearning i guess to at once differentiate oneself while um, finding acceptance mm-hmm. um and you you mentioned norm circles um you're talking about ideas uh, established by the academic david eldervas who is interested in how social groups endorse uh, and circulate norms amongst themselves and basically how social relationships are constructed um, through the phenomenon of norm circles. And mm-hmm. this, is, this concept of, of norm circles and social endorsement is what brings us to the project of yours, Casual Relationships, which was published by um, in other words, uh, in 2018, in other words, is a publishing project by the graphic designers OKRM, who were on the show a couple of years ago, actually. Mm. I think, you know, I have this sort of general interest in um, how language, how history, how meaning is constructed. And the, the, the work that you mentioned before in the bedroom this kind of came out of um, understanding photography as a construct. And so this, the casual relationships is, is really about um, trying to understand culture as a construct. And so I kind of read uh, Elder Vass's book and 
um, really adopted this idea of uh, norm circles and endorsing um, and bringing things into culture. I, I like that these things are, are, are so everyday. We see them all the time um, and we mostly overlook their kind of real inherent meaning and it's not until we look at them even more closely and go beyond what we obviously recognise that we can start to understand the function of these pictures. Like that, you know, they're, they're maybe so well used that we kind of ignore how they're working. Mm -hmm. I just want to read a few descriptions of the kind of images in the book to give listeners a sense of what exactly we're talking about. So there's something like 20 images in total, right? And they, the book includes urban scenes and rural landscapes, like a, a greenhouse, the neon of a German hardware store, signs of a Norwegian campsite, um, a rainbow in Japan. And then there's also still lives, like a timber ladder, a bicycle, a skateboard. There are portraits, uh, a lazy summer scene of a woman by a lake, a man with a coat cap, drinking Fanta. And I'm just reading here now from a text by Daniel Palmer at the back of the book, mm -hmm. where he's saying the 20 images allude to leisure, commodification, and design. And their colorful, shiny, and graphic quality makes them appear almost like stock images. And, you know, some of these are taken from your archives. Others are reconstructed images based on what you maybe encountered on social media or in real life. Mm -hmm. And there is a real, to me, sense of uncanniness in seeing them and really feeling how, how generic they are, but how, inten how intentionally generic they are. Yeah, sure. And um, I think it's that strange sensation of the, the consciously generic, um, yeah. the, um, the knowingly um, mundane, um, that really got to me when I was looking at them. And there's this process of flipping through the book and seeing sometimes the same images combined in different ways um, that starts to feel a lot like some kind of exercise or experiment is mm -hmm. taking place um, where you, the viewer, are being asked to do something, to do some kind of interpretive work in a way I don't get when I look at a lot of photographs. this this sense that at some point maybe as a student you lost your faith in photography as a truth-telling medium and I think especially when it comes to architectural photography objectivity is something that um, you'd expect uh, is what is striven for what the photographer is aiming for is some kind of as objective, as kind of realistic as possible, a representation of the building. And we think of maybe photographers that listeners might be familiar with, like Burned and Hillett Beckert, and this attitude towards uh, documentary photography that came out of places like the Dusseldorf School um, as leading that approach to photography. And I, I want to understand what your relationship to that strain of architectural photography is and how in some ways you veered away from it and into other more idiosyncratic modes yeah well i think even that that type of uh burned and hiller Becher type of it looks objective but it's also a construct as well like you're every part of the process is kind of subjectively decided upon. So, you know, where you set up the camera to make it look so flat, like what aperture you use, what lens you use, what daylight you use, like all of these things are kind of subjective parts of the, the photographic process. 
um, that you know you're, you're making it you're trying to make it look objective and I would argue it does look objective but I wouldn't say that it is objective and there's any truth to it um, so I kind of am just more interested now in kind of formulating my own language that is um, a mixture of things and is like a mixture of still life photography or the, the way you might work with portrait photography or I, I think we spoke a bit about vernacular photography and um, you know what what this might constitute mm. as architectural photography I, I'm, I'm interested in like photographing the building not rendering the building you know like in a kind of a digital per perfect way I'm, I'm interested in letting the camera be a camera and you know not trying to falsify how the camera sees it mm -hmm. what you're saying now is just bringing me to um the the book project uh footnotes backgrounds and sheds which mm -hmm. was a commission by hugh strange to mm -hmm. document the drawing matter archives at, um, mm -hmm. on shatwell farm in somerset yeah yeah, yeah. um and uh, you and i had spoken briefly um a few weeks ago at a, um, a drawing summer school that was held there. And you'd mentioned in that conversation that Hugh had approached you to document the building after he'd seen some of your other work. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the way into understanding what you mean by vernacular and understanding how that applies to architectural photography is maybe through getting a sense of what exactly Hugh as an architect was drawn to and the work he was looking at, what that work was exactly. Well, it, it was mostly photographs that I'd taken in Japan of um, just very everyday kind of detritus that I, you know, sort of saw when I was there. Um, for Hugh, it had a, had a certain language and it, it was um, quite everyday in the subject matter that it was kind of playing with. Um, mm. Yeah, I get the sense looking at the kind of photographs that you're describing, that the experience is very pedestrian and a little bit voyeuristic. Yeah, and I, I think they're tiny little moments within those kind of pedestrian voyeuristic um kind of scenes mm. yeah and I, think I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that there's absolutely nothing in them but they're they're, they're very uh mundane mm -hmm. and that's maybe where um that kind of attitude or that kind of that kind of language as you call it starts to resonate with um um a certain attitude that some architects might have or architects like Hugh Strange might have around this interest in the everyday or in the quotidian or in the um, kind of life as it's found. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, what's interesting to me is that generally speaking, the way architecture is documented, the way it's captured and reproduced visually and consumed visually, is more about the kind of slick and comprehensive view of the work, mm -hmm. um, the seemingly objective, but um, highly kind of refined and altered and adjusted, mm -hmm. the highly artificial, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, that's generally what, what we see when we look at architectural photography. Yeah, And then the kind of documentary work um, you're describing, these photographs, these pictures from Japan, are much more closely cropped, mm -hmm. are circumstantial, accidental, and based on chance mm -hmm. and the unexpected mm -hmm. and the uncomposed, the seemingly uncomposed. Mm -hmm. And 
What's interesting to me is this tension between um, thinking about a picture as a construction or a fabrication mm -hmm. of the kind I was describing with the kind of commercialized architectural rendering versus the um, circumstantial kind of as found pedestrian view of of design space of architectural space mm -hmm. yeah when, when i think back now on the the japanese photos and the you know architectural photos what they all have in common is that they have this um tiny thread of narrative to them and in the in the same way with the architecture i'm always kind of looking for a, a narrative within the architecture whether it's you know the the, the light or um some play between the elements in the in the building or um the, the context whether it's you know something over the back fence or you know, with when in the Hugh Strange thing, it was you know maybe it was a relationship between a model and something that was laying next to it that somehow it, it formed some sort of narrative relationship that then the, the the picture sort of came alive and could be read as as something beyond you know just what it was. So I, for me, this this is kind of a thread between the the different um, styles of. Uh, of photography that I'm doing or, or different subject matters, but how I handled them in a sim similar way. Mm -hmm. And I should just say that that book, uh, Footnotes, Backgrounds and Sheds, was published in 2018 and also features a, a text by Elizabeth Hatz. So it's a photo essay and then a critical essay um, as well. Um, I mean, just hearing you explain that process of extracting narrative from the scenes that you're recording um, and the kind of fixation you have on relationships between the work, the architecture and its use, I guess, or the way the outside world kind of inflicts itself on it. Mm -hmm brings me to, I guess, another project, a more recent project of yours, which is a collaboration in editing um, a magazine called Superposition, mm -hmm. which is a periodical investigating the human side of architecture. Uh, I mean, the way you're talking about the, um, the footnotes project and documenting the dry matter archives and the way a lot of your photographs seem to play out is through this um, fixation with the human element. <laughs> yeah, or, or even just the idea of reading a gesture, you know, like in, in the same way that a, a sculptor might put different kind of pieces together to create uh, some sort of language between the, the, the sculpture, the, you know, the pieces of the sculpture or the different kind of materials it's kind of inherently reading these inanimate objects and understanding that they have some animation to them so how does that sensibility that you're refining through this visual language play out in the editorial role you took on with superposition and i have to say that um it's a project you co-edited with um a group of architects whose names I'll probably butcher now, but Leo Bettini, Oberkalmsteiner, Tibor Beliki, Elena Errol, and Dominique Kim. And this first issue was guest edited as well by Freddie Fischli and Niels Olsen. Yeah, well, I, I, I think um, what the superposition allows is the, the, the space to really articulate um, an investigation thoroughly like where normally when I would work with um, a magazine, um, you know, I, I would end up handing over the pictures and, you know, from half a day, a day's shooting. And, um, you know, 
that that's kind of my role in it. Whereas as now, um, you know, I'm in a position to have a, a much longer extended conversation with whoever it is that we're interested in in speaking to. And then having the, the space in the magazine to, to really kind of explore and articulate that language with the architect and also with the designer, um, Wayne Daly, because we have, you know, we're on the same page, but um, because we've got the space to do that. Mm. Mm. I think just to, to end the, to kind of draw the conversation to a close, um, I wondered if we could talk a bit about one other project uh, called Nothing Matters, which was a kind of online exhibition you put on, or a website essentially that you mm-hmm. you uh, published in 2013, mm-hmm. um, and involved the doubling of the world, um, as we talked about before, uh, but in another way where you're taking random images from your own photographic archive and translating the file name of the image into the Dewey Decimal System so that Mm -hmm. the images become linked with a particular book. In this case, uh, on the shelves of of a public library in Hackney. Mm And so, I mean, I encourage listeners just to to visit the website, which is nothingmatters.info. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, what we're seeing as we look at it is just this bizarre juxtaposition of of images and books, uh, book titles specifically. So we see rocks, trees, fruit, wooden tables, doorways, weeds, car parks, and beautiful people. And they're given corresponding titles of books, which include, for example, we see a plate of grapes sitting in dappled sunlight, and it's titled 784.494, The Sound of History. The nape of a woman's neck becomes 822.330, As You Like It, and a weed growing up a wire fence is called 109.000, A New History of Western Philosophy. And when I saw that, I was so excited by the, what I saw as a kind of nihilistic view of picture making and um, this kind of playful um, game that you're playing to underscore the absurdity of logic when it's applied in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but having heard you talk more about this project recently, Um, There are different kinds of nothing, and this kind of nihilistic nothing is only part of the project. It's only one piece in this puzzle. Yeah, so there are, I kind of understand, two readings of nothing. And, you know, the, the, the first reading is this idea that you know, when you put the two, the, the picture and the book together, it, it changes the the meaning of the picture. And, you know, so you get this sense that the picture could mean absolutely anything, you know, put next to it a different title. And, and so that, you know, that there's no real meaning to anything. But then there's, there's also this idea that the nothing, you know, what surrounds the project um, is what creates the, the the context for the way you read it, and you know in this project I give the example of the the buying policy at the at the library. So you know all the books that I'm I'm drawing on to make these relationships obviously only exist um, in the library because of um, the librarian who 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 bought them and and brought them in there. And so the the buying policy becomes, you know, the mechanical um, representation of 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 the nothing. You know, how did these books come to, come to be? Well, it's because of the buying policy, which is kind of the nothing around the the, the, the project. So 
it becomes that the, the nothing is is what actually matters in in creating the um, the, the framework, or, you know, or the or the meaning for the for the picture. Mm. Mm. And what it makes me think of is how, in some sense, you are your also your own librarian in the context of your archive and in the context mm. of, um, I guess the the metaphorical buying policy you've established in terms of the kind of photographs you decide to take in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really drawn to this idea of, of investigating what matters and also the decision-making process um, or if we're referring to it as the kind of nothingness around the pictures that you make. And I mean, in a way, that's the whole point of what this conversation was about. And I feel like we've gotten closer to it or been able to somehow um, define the contours of that nothingness a little more clearly. Mm-hmm. But I guess as, and this is going to really put you on the spot, but like <laughs> as a way of, of, of kind of concluding, um, I want to hear you talk more about um, this decision-making process that goes into um, taking pictures in the first place and understanding from you uh, as well as I can um, what merits um, documentation and also what merits, I guess, an image being um, extracted from your archive, which I can only imagine is incredibly vast and then brought into the world and circulated. Um, well, I, I, I don't think all of the images are created in the, in the same way. You know, some of them I would classify as photographs where they're just something that I kind of visually feel compelled to, to photograph. But I think, um, you know, underlying... Um, drive you know in creating a lot or you know putting together a lot of the pictures is um just a curiosity and the the pictures or the photographs are something that i use to try and understand a a larger process or in the case of architecture you know it's it's my way of trying to understand a project is you know the through the scale or through the through the narrative that's happening in a in a project, um, or by you know setting up this process to 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 try and understand you know meaning. So I set up this process with with the logic of numbers and the um, you know and, and quite often because I'm working in in different ways, I, I might not have a realization about a certain image until I'm looking at it through a different lens. Like I might have my kind of slightly more commercial hat on, you know, which was the case with the, with the nothing matters. I was um, doing work for the architecture foundation that they needed to kind of turn around super quickly. And so I was just thinking about the images as, as file numbers, like writing down these like really quick lists of edit, you know? And so this kind of thinking of, of the image as a number came from from something else and then i kind of pieced it back with my own logic of you know trying to understand the, you know the construction of meaning and language and photography and um so it all kind of comes together in slightly hybrid ways um because i would say i use pictures and photograph a camera in in different ways and so they kind of somehow wash over each other a little. And, you know, maybe it's this idea of being a voyeur from one to the other, like being slightly commercial and then being able to, as an outsider, look onto your art practice or vice mm. versa that helps you kind of see things slightly differently. Mm. Like this idea of being once removed, I think, you know, whether it's a foreigner in a different, you know, in a a different country or a practitioner working with a different discipline, you know, this is always kind of a a helpful tool. Max, thank you so much for your time. (laughs) Matthew, pleasure. (laughs) 
You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Special thanks this week to Max Creasy. Thanks as always to Scandolin. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.